In the Bible, there are many metaphors concerning the church of the Lord. For instance, the church is referred to as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. Christ is the head of the body, Colossians 1.18, the church. And we as Christians are various members thereof. You're the body of Christ and members in particular, 1 Corinthians 12.23 and 27. And the figure of speech, the church is the body, speaks of the headship of Christ and the unified working of the members thereof. In Ephesians 5 and other places, Romans 7, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And that speaks of its purity and its integrity, without spot or blemish or any such thing, to quote Ephesians 5:27. The church is also referred to as the kingdom of Christ. He is king, we're the subjects, the gospel is the law, for our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3:20. And this figure of speech speaks of the church as one under the authority of Christ, and that we strive to follow the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14. But the figure of speech I seldom ever hear discussed is just as clearly delineated in the Bible, and that is the church as the army of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 1 through 17. We fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life, 1 Timothy 6, 12. And no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who called him to be a soldier. Beautiful entreaty of 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. We're not to keep back our sword from blood, Isaiah 48, 10. And that simply means the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. You see, our battle is against wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6. And we're not in the battle in a carnal way, but we are in a militant stance against Satan and sin, and the chicanery of the devil. We need to appreciate the fact that there is a war out there, and the devil has far more troops than the army of Christ can muster, and therefore we must stand together. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1 Love the brotherhood, as we read in 1 Peter 2.17. And when soldiers of Christ love one another with a pure heart fervently, 1 Peter 1.22, they form a solid phalanx against the devil and all the satanic host. And it's no marvel for Satan himself and his angels are transformed into angels of light. But we're not ignorant of their devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 to 15. To be sure, the Bible straightforwardly teaches that Christians are in the volunteer army of Christ. We fight against wickedness, evil, error, and we must stand together. Today we'd like to explore this study even further and notice the commander, the weapon, the battle, the enemy, and the goal in this straightforward teaching from the Scriptures, the church as the army of the Lord. Let's notice first the commander. Fortunately, he is perfect. He's the captain of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. To quote Hebrews 2, verse 10, he's the pioneer, our trailblazer. And he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation and all them that obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. I've read in American history and heard it in history classes that uh, Andrew Jackson was the greatest raiser of volunteer armies that the nation has ever had. But however great he may have been in that famous entreaty of the Battle of New Orleans in getting every single man to volunteer, Jesus Christ has the greatest volunteer army of all time. No one has ever been forced to serve him or conscripted into his service. 
every single soldier in the army of the Lord is volunteer. And this commander is the one that we should be seeking. Sirs, we would see Jesus. John 12, 21. They could tell the apostles had been with Christ. Acts 4, 13. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6, 68. And Philippians 2, 8 says, God gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Peter 2.21 says we're to follow his steps, because he did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth. Though tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, is said of Jesus in Hebrews 4.15. So to follow a perfect commander, a captain that has never given a wrong order, that is never let out in defeat, that one that we can trust because he paved the way before us, one who never asked anything of us he hasn't already done for us. For instance, in Revelation 1, he says to the beleaguered, persecuted saints in the seven congregations of Asia, I died for you. Why would it be strange that you'd be called upon to die for me? In Revelation 1.18, he said, I was alive, then dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. And if you will overcome, even as I overcame, you can sit down with me in my Father's throne, Revelation 3.21. Revelation 5 has an anthem concerning this perfect commander. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty, both now and forever. Amen. Isn't it great that this commander, this captain of our salvation in the army of the Lord, never made a mistake, never issued a wrong order, and were always led in triumph in Christ? 2 Corinthians 2.14 The strangest thing about surrendering to Christ is we surrender and win. That's never been known in the history of warfare. But when we lay our lives down for the Lord Jesus Christ, we become consummate winners, winners at that very moment. We cannot lose. If God be for us, who can be against us? God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake, we're killed all the day long. We're counted sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors for them that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beautiful finale of the greatest chapter I've ever read, Romans 8 in the heart of the New Testament. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, for he will supply all our needs. Philippians 4.13 and 4.19. If God be for us, he can be against us. We know that all things work together for good to those that obey the will of God. That's the teaching of Romans 8.28. And when we step in line and follow Prince Emmanuel as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Commander-in-Chief of his spiritual army, we understand more fully what 2 Corinthians 10 says. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty toward God, to the casting down of strongholds, bringing every thought into captivity unto Christ. What a great commander. We need to follow him in the blessed army of the Lord, to fight against Satan and sin and the demons in hell, and to be victorious in the after a while. In this life, we have the confidence that in following Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he is our forerunner to heaven, Hebrews 6. He is now in heaven for us, Hebrews 9, 24. And if we follow this captain whithersoever he goeth, 
Revelation 14, 4 says we'll wind up where he is. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Don't ever forget Revelation 14, 13. So we've discussed the great and perfect captain and commander of our souls in the spiritual army of the Lord. Now let's talk a moment about the enemy. And what a ferocious, tenacious, bulldogish, never-give-up opponent he is. I'm thankful for 1 John 4, 4 that says, He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And Romans 16, 20, God shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. And 1 John 3, 8, For this cause was the Son of God made known that he might bring to naught the power of the devil. This saga begins, though, believe it or not, in the third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis, the book of beginnings, 3.15, God promised the devil the seed of woman would crush the devil's power. But he is a formidable foe. He's the strong man of Luke 11.22. Fortunately, Christ is stronger than he. Mark 3, verse 27. We need to appreciate the fact, though, that this enemy, Satan, the devil, our adversary, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. We read of the wiles of the devil. He's very clever and crafty. Ephesians 6, 11. And in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, Paul said, I fear as the serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety, so also your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And lest there be any doubt about it, that serpent is Satan. For Revelation 12, 9 speaks of him as that old serpent, Satan, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. In Luke 22:31, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Satan desires to have you. And though Peter vociferously responded by saying he'll never get me, 30 verses later, in Luke 22:61, the devil had him. And Peter, who had denied the Lord thrice, went out and wept bitterly, Matthew 26:75 says. He knew that he had been a coward for the cause of Christ, and the devil on that occasion had gotten the better of him. And any time you think you're so strong the devil can't get you, you're about ready to be gobbled up by him. He is very, very clever. Ephesians 4.26 tells Christians, don't allow the devil a launching pad in your life. Don't let him land and take off in your territory. Don't give place to the devil. But let's talk a moment about this uh, antagonistic foe, this one who would suck us under into his quagmire of evil. He is an active adversary. In fact, the Greek word for Satan, letter for letter in the Greek, spells out adversary. And he is a very strong adversary who desires our souls that we might be forever lost. And sometimes we have to snatch people out of the fire, hating even the garment stained by sin. So subtle is this devil. Read Jude verse 22 and 23. And while we're on that subject, he's a subtle serpent. As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. See, the devil doesn't walk down Main Street with a big red flag saying, I'm the devil, watch out for me. He's clever. He's sharp. He knows our weaknesses. And thus he is an active adversary and a crafty chameleon. A chameleon is a lizard-like animal that changes spots and colors and stripes to match its environment. And whatever your weakness is, he's roaming around somewhere in the background. Whatever mine may be, he can change his stripes to meet me head on. He tried that with Jesus in Matthew 4, through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain glory of life. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and in every arena, in every area, on in every point, the Lord sent the devil packing with, it is written, it is written, it is written, verbatim quoting of Scripture that sent the devil to flight. We need to appreciate the fact, though, that he is a subtle serpent, and he does his very best in his crafty chameleon garb to draw us away. 
So we need to be ever watchful, always on guard, and withstand him in the faith, 1 Peter 5, 9. We also read that he's the tempter, a terrific tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. We read that he has snares, too, the snare of the devil, which is pride, 1 Timothy 3, 7. But I'll tell you who the devil is. He's a diabolical demon. And ranchers out in Arizona, New Mexico, call their untamed stallions Diablos, the untamed ones. And that's what the devil is. He is very, very powerful. And when you think that uh, he can do you no damage, he comes out as a mad dog chained, Revelation 20. And when you walk into the periphery of his boundaries, you're in trouble. And that's why we must always withstand this enemy boldly with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder, soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and his discern of the thought and intent of the heart. Hebrews 4.10. No wonder Jeremiah 48.10 states, don't keep your sword back from blood. Now let's talk about the soldiers in this army. In Numbers 32.6, in an Old Testament metaphor, is it right for you to sit here idle while your brethren have gone out to war? We need to unsheath the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and use it wisely and constantly to ward off the devil and his shenanigans. He wants to reach us through overt wickedness, through false religion, and within the body of Christ by causing us to be unfaithful and disloyal. He is a very reprehensible foe, and soldiers of Christ must be on guard. Paul said from prison, I'm set for the defense of the gospel, Philippians 1.17. Jude commands, inspire the Holy Spirit, his brethren, then and now, that's us, contend earnestly for the faith. Once for all time, deliver the saints. Contend earnestly. Those are weaponry concepts of soldiers of Christ. We need to hone that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to a strong white heat and cut and slash Satan and sin as we march under the banner of Prince Emmanuel against spiritual wickedness in high places. These soldiers in the army must be alert, and they must muster with the troops when the captain calls for us, therefore not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10.25. We must appreciate the fact that in the army of the Lord, if the soldiers let the Lord down, the battle has been won. And when the devil can get in our midst and turn us against one another and have us warring among soldiers in the army of the Lord, we'll never get out of the battlefield to whip up on him with truth. How did the early Christians, the soldiers of Christ, act? They went everywhere preaching the word. But see, you can't preach what you don't know. They must have studied the scriptures to handle them aright. 2 Timothy 2.15, to be able to teach others also, James 5.19 and 20, to restore the erring brethren through daily exhortation, Hebrews 3.13. We need soldiers like that today, who daily in the temple, publicly and privately, from house to house, cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ, Acts 5.42. In fact, the early soldiers filled all Jerusalem with that doctrine, Acts 5.28. They so spake boldly that great multitudes believed. Don't ever forget Acts 14, 1 to 3. Their sound went out in all the earth. Romans 10, 18. They believed that they were debtors to preach the gospel. They should be ready to preach it. And they certainly would never be ashamed to preach it. It's God's power to save. Romans 1, 14 through 16. In fact, an ardent soldier of Christ, be well, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. In another place, Paul said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That statement of 1 Corinthians 9.16 reminds me of a 
embracing verse for all of us, we've been put in trust with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 And since men are called by the gospel of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, we need to preach it everywhere. The word of God grew and multiplied. The marvelous statement of Acts 12.24 Mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Acts 19, verse 20. That's what they did with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, even though they were persecuted, imprisoned, and many of them killed for preaching the gospel. They preached it anyway. We're not threatened, imprisoned, or put to death for preaching it, and we don't preach it. That's the difference in them and us. They felt the charge, the command, the responsibility to take the sword of the Word, the, the spiritual sword, the Word of God, to a lost and dying world and encompass the Roman Empire so that Paul could write all creation under heaven has heard the gospel preached. The ancient world heard it. Colossians 1, 6 and 1, 23. And so we've discussed the commander, the enemy, and the soldiers. Now how about the battle? It's raging every day. I'll tell you where much of the battle against Satan is found today in the homes of America. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Psalm 127, 1. Two verses later, children are in heritage of the Lord, but some parents don't act like they are. Some children are bereft of parental guidance. They're out on the streets. Uh, they really are terribly misused and abused by juvenile parents. Juvenile delinquency is really a reflection of juvenile parenting. We need to appreciate what Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Set your house in order, for ye shall die and not live. Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah the king in 2 Kings 20, verse 1. We need to have parents like John the Immerser had. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So much of the battle today would be in the homes of the world. Righteousness exalts the nation. Sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14:34. It is a tragedy how men do not love their wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, and how some women are not in subjection to their husbands, as 1 Corinthians 11, 1-3 teaches. And some children are absolutely, totally undisciplined, though the whole book of Proverbs is rife with passage after passage that tells us if we're not disciplined by parents, perhaps we're illegitimate. In other words, God expects parents to discipline their children to the glory of God, to teach them respect for authority, parental authority, government authority, Romans 13:1, and authority, the authority of Christ, Matthew 28:18, submitted to. But when homes fail, out in society, down Main Street, roam those who really have not been taught what the Bible teaches about the home as God would have it. We need to appreciate Deuteronomy 6, 1-7 that tells parents to write the law of the Lord upon their children's foreheads, the palms of their hands, the doorposts, when they come in the house, when they go out on the street, train up a child in the way he should go, Proverbs 26. And so we need to bow in obeisance to God's will and not allow the devil a heyday in our homes. Sometimes the devil operates within congregations when brethren fail to love one another. Jesus said, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, and the love you have one for another. John chapter 13. And if we see our brother in need, whatever kind of need, and do not help him, how dwells the love of God in us? Now let's talk a moment about the goal of the army of the Lord. One of the most impressive things and sad things I ever saw in my life was a huge military graveyard outside Manila in the Philippines. 100,000 white crosses out there. They stretch for acres and acres. The day that I visited there while I was preaching in Quezon City, uh, two whole busloads of Japanese tourists uh, unloaded and took pictures of that. 
Now, many of their loved ones were in that area, too. And they had a huge display of every battle in that uh, Far East uh, part of the war that MacArthur was in charge of. It uh, showed how the battles began and who won them and all the losses of life. As I stood there looking over the crosses representing these dead people, I thought these people died in a physical, temporal, earthly battle for gain and prestige and governmental authority. But how more blessed are those who die in Christ. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. The ultimate goal of soldiers of Christ is found in Paul's statement in Philippians 1, 21 and 23. For to me to die is gain. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Hebrews eleven sixteen said, Abraham, a soldier of God in Old Testament days, looked for a better country, that is, in heavenly. And 2 Corinthians 5, 1 finds Paul in eloquent language saying, We know that this earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So our goal ultimately is heaven. Christ is our forerunner to heaven. This gives us hope as an anchor of the soul. We have fled to him for refuge. He is now in heaven for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. How do these soldiers voluntarily get into the army of the Lord? Acts 2.41 says those who gladly received the word were baptized, and the Lord added them to his church or his army. We also read in Colossians 2.12 and 13, buried with Christ in baptism, wherein also you risen with him through faith in the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. When we believe in Christ, John 8.24, repent of our sins, Acts 17.30, confess the precious name of Christ as the Ethiopian did in Acts 8.37, and are baptized into Christ under the remission of past sins, Acts 22:16. we're automatically entered as a soldier in the army of the Lord, this volunteer army that begins with the invitation of Christ in Matthew 11 and is consummated in our submission to His will. And once we, as soldiers of Christ, enter that blessed army, we ought to say in the language of a very fine secular song, Give me some men who are stout-hearted men, who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. Shoulder to shoulder and bolder and bolder, they grow as they go to the foe. And there's nothing in the whole wide world that can halt or mar or stop any plan. And I add, when stout-hearted Christians stick together man to man, may the army of the Lord go forth boldly in purity, in confidence under Christ the Commander, and one day walk the golden street of glory, always triumphant in Christ.